this. So yeah, you let me know what you'd like cut. And then uh, is there anything you don't want to talk about or you'd rather stay clear of? I'm pretty much an open book, so. Okay. Well, uh, you could be an open book and then if you feel like, well, I shouldn't have said that, you can let me know after. <laughs> That's is right. Any... If I get too excited about something and say words maybe I shouldn't say on this podcast, you can, you can just take those out. <laughs> okay, I'll do that. And then is there anything you want to talk about? Um, I'm not in particular, I mean, I'm, I'm free to go where the spirit leads. Um, you know, I did just do the book, the four keys to parent fearlessly. So, I mean, if that comes up, that would be great, but it doesn't have to, um, you know, fear, but how fear affects us and, um, how we, how do we not live from it, but actually, um, create new realities in spite of it, basically. So it's, uh, Parenting, What's the, the title of the book is? Four Keys to Parent Fearlessly. Four Keys. Okay, yeah, that'd be good. I, I can, uh, I, I thought we'd talk about your background, uh, your journey, what brought you to Loop 10, what Loop 10 is all about. And then I thought we'd end with how do you apply this to your marriage and family, the practices. Okay. So beautiful. So that would be a good place to talk. That's perfect. Yeah, because it's staying joy-filled and Jesus-led, even when you can't control the outcomes. That's the subtitle. You know, and really this book applies to any time uh, you can't control any outcome and you need to stay joy-filled and Jesus-led. Yeah. I, I just wrote it, the first draft for parents. I think I'll probably have another one at some point that's more general uh, public and not just parents, but. Yeah, no, I thought it was... Uh... I thought it was kind of a, it was a challenging read in some ways. Um, yeah, so, tell me about that. Well, just to wrap, I mean, I, you're a very good writer, but you know, there's a lot of deep stuff that to even to for me to get my mind around. Wow. It was. Uh, Maybe so, we should yeah. save this for the discussion later. I mean, I'd love to hear your feedback on it. <laughs> and if it's live, that's great because it helps other people know what to expect when they get to the book, right? So. Your honest feedback is great for anyone thinking about no. jumping into it. No, okay, well, good. Well, let me, um, I'll start and introduce us and go from there. It says, hi everyone, my name is Tom Pritchard and welcome to the Marriage Champions podcast where I talk with marriage champions about the habits, skills, and tools marriage champions can use to have and help others have great marriages and families. Today, my guest is Tony Daniels. Tony is a very talented, high-octane person. She and her husband, Matt, were missionaries for 18 years in Uruguay. They have four children, and she's a coach now uh, for skills-based relational enhancement training, author of a handful of books, has her own podcast program, and she's the training champions and operations director for Luke 10, a global Christian equipping organization. Tony, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much, Tom. That's quite an introduction. <laughs> That's right. Well, I, uh, you, you well deserve it. You're a very capable person. Uh, Tony, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated uh, by your background, um, the work you're doing with Luke 10, which is really a, a very unique, I, I'd say cutting edge organization. Um, but I'd like to start out by kind of hearing your story and a journey which led you ultimately to Luke 10. 
which uh, seeks to help Christians see church as family. Um, I don't know. Let's begin with your background, you know, you, your faith background, the influences on your life, work experiences, challenges wow. on the mission field. Um, you've got a very... Wide open. Background. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so... I don't even know what part of that to jump into. Um, I was, I really had a heart for God very early in my life. So my parents were culturally Christian because we were, I was raised in the South of the United States, which at the time you were born Christian, basically, if you were born in the Southern US, not so anymore, obviously, but um, but they really didn't understand what that meant. And for them, it meant going to church, right? And it, it, it meant to try to obey rules, you know, of, of living correctly. But no one lived up to any of those rules. No one they knew, at least. And they didn't even live up to those rules. And so what good were they if you couldn't live up to them? And, but, but definitely had a culture of going to church. And um, when I was eight years old, I had a fear of being abandoned, of my parents dying, actually, and me being left alone. And it was out of that, that when I heard shortly after that, that there was a God who loved me, who would never leave me or forsake me, that I was like, oh, I want that. <laughs> That's exactly what my heart's longing for. And I remember accepting Christ as my Savior in that moment, um, very young. And by 13, I'm journaling every day. I just, I'm a three on the Enneagram. So that means if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it wholeheartedly and I'm going to be the best at it that I can possibly be. <laughs> so I pursued God in that fashion as well. So I dove all in, journaled, read my Bible every day for eons and eons. You know, as soon as the call for missions came up, I was there, I'm me, send me, um, which, you know, at 16, I think was a not just a dysfunctionality of my personality, but I really do think uh, just lately listening to God around that and having some appreciation around those moments in my life, I feel like God was saying, yeah, I was there. I was there and I was drawing you out, Tony. I was, I was calling you to do what you're doing today, even back then when you were 16. And so um, just felt that pleasure of God in my life. Um, but I didn't always sense his presence with me. And I had a lot of emotional um, ups and downs, I guess. I was a very emotional person, uh, high sensitivity as well, high empath. And so that didn't always go over well. And I'm very strong. So in community environments, I came off too strong a lot of times. Um, and it, it just didn't go over well in community, let's say. So all of that, um, I met my husband in high school. And we were the best poster children for codependency you've ever seen. And he was an addict and I was happy to be the co-addict and um, addicted to making him happy and making sure that he was okay. <laughs> and, um, and boy, we did a lot of adventures together in that wonderful um, scenario. Although thankfully very early on recognized, you know, we were 17 when we met, we were 21 when we married probably by 20, by 23, three years into marriage, we're going, whoa, something we need to differentiate. We need to grow up. We need to figure out how to be healthy. And so started pursuing help 
um, radical help at that point in our life that just began the accumulation of amazing resources <laughs> um, that have led us to where we are today, honestly, in marriage and family and emotional health and spiritual health in maturity and, and even just in relational health. Um, so being the coaches that we are today stemmed really out of our own need to grow up and differentiate and learn how to be two adults in a marriage instead of uh, two kids sucking off of each other's strengths. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. You got married at 21. I know you went to seminary. You, um, we're on the mission field. Um, yeah, so my husband also felt called to missions, ironically. I mean, that was really what drew us together at such a young age, was who else? We didn't know anyone else that was willing to give up their comfort in the U.S. to go live overseas and share Christ. And so we were naturally drawn to each other, I think, because of that. We went to, uh, we, I studied sociology, he studied anthropology, and then we went to, did our master's degree in leadership development and urban church planting, how to plant churches. So that's what we studied that for two solid years, how to begin churches that thrive, right? Um, pretty much useless, <laughs> I'll have to say. Um, but the, you know, the church was in an interesting moment of history, I think, where, where we were reflecting on the fact that large church gatherings were no longer, weren't working. They weren't reproducing disciples who reproduced disciples, right? They weren't producing disciples who produced disciples. Um, and they weren't getting into homes. You know, people would go to church and be church at church somehow, all dressed up nice and pretty, but then they'd get home and yell at their spouse or yell at their kids or fight, not know how to deal with those fights and not really know how to live Christ in the home. So there was a movement towards um, home church. And that's where, when we were in seminary doing our master's program, the whole push was cell church and home church and what that looks like and church planting. And so we did get a lot of that. Um, but what we found later on, which you know, is that it, it takes even a smaller unit so you can practice relationship every day in order to really grow the, the relational skills necessary to, to love well um, ourselves, God and each other. So we gave our life to missions. We um, decided to go to Uruguay, South America, because uh, we had to do an internship and we had people on the ground there and we spoke Spanish somewhat. And so after about a year there, not even three months in, we fell in love with the culture and the people. We just knew we were made for this place and we were re ready to live and die there. Honestly, um, love that country so much and the people there. So we were sent there to plant churches and we watched two missionary teams implode and watch missionaries not be able to pray together, not be able to talk together. So much hurt, so much pain. And really, again, Matt and I pursuing as much resources as we could to understand that situation. You know, as, a, as formed as a sociologist and anthropologist, we're constantly analyzing the situation, right? The bigger picture. What's going on here? What are influencing this? What part of the culture is influencing what's going on here? Not just the people, but the larger picture of missions and missionaries and church and what's going on. And again, coming down to people lack basic relational skills. They do not know how to regulate their emotions. None of us, you know, we don't know how to quiet ourselves when we need to. We don't know how to build joy so that we don't burn out. Um, and, and then we end up blaming each other for issues and we end up not being able to hold differences and hold that tension. And we don't have the maturity to do that either. So watch two mission teams implode and then started walking other teams um, through problems 
as they uh, started having problems. So Matt and I were quite an anomaly on the mission field. Uh, we would be uh, sought out by any any denomination, any missionary anywhere for help at any time, for coaching at any time. Um, and at one point, we we had been there the longest because it was the graveyard of missionaries. And so, you know, give give them three to five years and they're gone. And we had made it 18, right? So um, it was weird to be young and be the oldest <laughs> people on the field, the wisest. It was scary, which then leads to why we ended up leaving the field, because that's not a healthy environment to be in for anyone. But that's a little bit of that narrative. I don't know what other parts you want to know about. Uh, what, uh, you know, it sounds like a real stressful pressure experience in some ways. I mean, if you sounds of other groups kind of imploding, um, probably a lot of spiritual dynamics going on. What, and the pressure, how did that affect you guys? I mean, what did, what did that, I find when sometimes the pressure comes on in our lives, mm. it reveals maybe areas that aren't as strong or as rooted as they need to be. What, what sort of things did you learn about yourselves then? Yeah, I think that's a fantastic question. Um, about three years in, actually, I want to get, I mean, even in the internship, when we were there um, the very first year, um, you know, my husband started to experience uh, deficiencies in his foundation is kind of the way I talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, he would go to perform or to be, to live out of his calling and who he is. He has so many gifts and so many strengths. The man is absolutely a genius, but he would go to live out of that and he would emotionally crumble. And he, he would be like, I can't go teach that class, Tony. And I'm like, honey, you can pull this out of your back pocket. Like what's going on, right? So that was the first year. And we're all of what, 24, uh, 25, <laughs> you know, but so we don't know what's going on and no one can help us. No one can tell us what's going on. Mm-hmm. So that was the first years was be, becoming broken, broken and not even understanding why or how or what to do about it. Um, and it took some very special friends and counselors and therapists to start helping us realize that we have tr- we both had trauma in our past that had never you know had not yet been healed or looked at, and that these situations it was almost like a tea bag in hot water, right? Before you put the tea bag in, it's all contained and beautiful, and the water's clear. <laughs> you put the tea bag in hot water, and all the darkness just oozes right out of it. <laughs> And that was like our lives, right? You put us in this hot water without family, without a church, without any community. And then you put children in the mix on top of that, where they have no grandparents, no aunts, no uncles, no, no one. And you're, you're really setting a couple up for massive failure or for massive growth if they can get the resources they need to sustain them during such a pressure cooker time, right? So thankfully, we had a lot of people that loved us and cared for us and resources to bring down therapists and resources to come back home and and get coaching or get therapy. So those that God provided every step of the way, those resources for us. But yes, it was very, very hard. Um, A manual prayer uh, connecting to God to go back to trauma to hear his perspective of what happened there um, was my go-to and my lifeline and so back to joy the first book I wrote was really chronicling all of those uh, those not all of them but most of the major moments of my process of learning to let God heal me and love me and living more out of that 
I really am loved. He really does love me, right? Instead of living out of um, I'm all alone, I'm abandoned um, kind of feeling that even though I knew intellectually was wrong, I still felt that way inside. Um, and so that was a process of God changing my experience to match my knowledge, you know, my intellectual knowledge. Um, and Emmanuel prayer for me was key in that. Um, Emmanuel didn't work for my husband. So he had a really hard time listening to God. It was not something that he could actually do. And so that was a, a long period of getting lots of other help um, for him in, in, until that could finally happen. And Thrive Training was uh, with Life Model Works was what helped us realize the power of joy in our lives and, and how important joy and appreciation are in order to try to connect to God <laughs> or sense his presence, that we need a joy base. And so what he realized was, holy camoly, I don't have a, I don't have a joy base at all. And joy, you know, that sensation of someone's glad to be with you no matter what, no matter what you're feeling, no matter what you're thinking, no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, someone's glad to be with you anyway. And my mother was an amazing source of joy for me. So I had joy, my, you know, my dad, a little harder. Um, I felt more like I got his pleasure when I was achieving, uh, which is probably why I'm a three on the Enneagram, <laughs> one of the reasons, but, um, but my husband really didn't have a sense of joy at all. And so we thankfully were able to learn very specific skills through Thrive to build our joy together and build his joy. So as a couple, that's some of the ways this was relating, this was affecting us, right? We we started to break down communication. There were moments he had two nervous breakdowns. I mean, it was really messy and real life. And we had really good friends, loved ones, caretakers to step in. And we asked for help when we needed it. And I think a lot of couples on the mission field didn't know how to ask for help. And they would lash out and blame each other instead of saying, whoa, I need help too. We need help. And, you know, when people say, how did you make it? I go, we both were, were, we were, we were too weak to not ask for help, like we had to ask for help. <laughs> and the people who were strong and didn't were the ones that couldn't make it um, in, in my mind, right? Not that they didn't have what it took or anything, but they just didn't ask for help. And when they got help, they didn't receive it really. It was, it was very interesting. They were kind of determined to stay their course. Whereas we were like, I'm so broken. I'll learn whatever you've got for me. And if it's silly practices, I'll do them. <laughs> and we did. Well, you mentioned two groups, uh, Emmanuel, uh, Prayer, uh, and Thrive. Why don't you talk a little bit about what Emmanuel Prayer is? And, you know, was that something totally new to you? Or had you been familiar or practicing that on your own? But just talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So I had done a form of Emmanuel Prayer, um, really predating Emmanuel Prayer was Theophostic. And um, I had been trained in that when I was very young, when I was like in my 20s. So, and, and it, they're similar in some ways, very different in others. And the key difference with Emmanuel approach is the appreciation piece, really beginning in appreciation. The, the, also the key difference there is that the motive for connecting to God is to build intimacy. Whereas in a lot of other healing modules, the motive there is to find healing, right? I'm going to do this. I'm going to connect with God because I want to be healed from a past trauma. Whereas Emmanuel says, you know what? Why don't we just connect with Jesus and let him lead? And if he wants to heal us from trauma, great. But if he wants to just build joy, why don't we just build joy? So that didn't come into our lives until Matt. And I mean, until Matt was able to connect to God. So that would have been with Thrive. 
Before that was the theophostic approach, which I, I didn't have a problem connecting because I already had that sense of joy and that appreciation already inside of me from my childhood. So I was able to kind of connect without that and be able to sense God in my trauma, but I was never able to feel him in my day-to-day life. So it was a very interesting thing because I could sense God when I needed him to heal me from a traumatic moment. But other than that, my day-to-day life still felt up and down emotionally and was very hard to feel loved by him. So One, you know, what, what is yeah. theophostic? What, what is, describe that and also- Theophostic was a, it was a, a, a healing, it is, I mean, it's a healing module, a kind of a, a prayer healing uh, modality, I guess is what you would call it, um, where you start in um, a painful memory um, and you, you ask, you're, you're, you're tracking the painful memory. You start with your current emotion. You ask God to take you to the memory where that originated. So uh, wherever that memory originated, wherever that feeling originated. So if I'm feeling um, stressed right now or pressed from every side, um, where did that originate? You know, maybe it originated because I was locked in a closet when I was a kid. <laughs> kids were playing and they locked my, my, my nieces, my, I mean, my cousins, and they locked me in the closet because I thought it'd be funny. So here I am in a closet, <laughs> right? And I'm feeling all that anxiety and that, that stress and that pressure. And so you find the memory, you ask God to take you to the memory, and then you ask God to reveal what lie you're, you're believing in that memory, or the counselor tries to help you find out what that lie is. So together you work with a therapist to remove any anger and things like that. And to figure out what the lie is. And maybe the lie in that memory could be something like, I'm trapped, I'm trapped, I'm trapped, right? Now, then you say, well, God, how do you, what do you want me to know about that? And you, and you, you know, usually Jesus comes into the memory in your imagination. He opens the closet door. Maybe he's in there with you, holding you. And he's saying, you're not trapped. You know, whatever that truth might be, he brings truth. He brings truth that just breaks the way you interpreted that moment. He breaks that whole situation. So that now when I think back on that memory, I actually feel peace because he's there with me. So kids still lock me in a closet, but I went alone. I had Jesus right there. So that's cool. Right. So it kind of replaces the trauma with a sense of peace. So that's what Theophostic did. Emmanuel Instead of just starting with your pain and going straight to this memory, Emmanuel says, let's start, let's build appreciation first. Let's think of memories where you were glad to be alive, where you felt this exhilarating sense of presence, right? That uh, it's a waterfall. It's me holding my child's hand. You know, it's looking at my son when he's leaving to go to school and he makes eye contact with me. You know, those are little moments that fill us with oxytocin. They fill us with all kinds of wonderful feelings inside our bodies. It's like an antidepressant <laughs> without having to take medication. <laughs> and so Emmanuel teaches you to collect those memories. And then it teaches you to go to those memories and find Jesus in the appreciation connect with God in those appreciation moments and feel how he feels about those Hear what he thinks about those uh, moments. Let him coach you. Uh, maybe he's going to coach me as a mother and talk about my son and how much I, my son loves me. And I love him and how proud he is of how I parented him and what I need to do today after school to love my son better. Right? So I get to connect with God, not just to heal trauma, but I get to connect with him to be my coach, to enjoy me, to, to just be present with me. And then if there is a bad feeling that I have, and if 
Jesus wants to take me back to memory, we can go there too and he can heal me of trauma. <laughs> but the goal is this daily intimate connection with the Father, um, the Holy Spirit, the Jesus, where I am able to connect like that whenever I need, whenever I want to or need to, to feel loved and to feel guided and to feel held. So, so you started to experience that through the Emmanuel, you know, when you're going through these challenges. You also mentioned a group called Thrive. What, yeah. who are they and what did they kind of bring to you guys? Right. So Thrive um, was founded by Chris, Chris and Jen Corsi, and they were um, mentored by Dr. Jim Wilder. And Dr. Jim Wilder founded Life Model Works. So there's a lot of organizations out there floating around that are uh, collaborative organizations with each other. But basically everything that Dr. Wilder was bringing to the, to the, the table regarding neuro, neuro the theology, for example, applying brain science to theology, applying brain science to what, what basically what they've discovered about our brain is so congruent with what God has said about us all along. <laughs> so scripture, <laughs> believe it or not, has been scientifically proven that most of what scripture has said is exactly the way God's designed our brains to function. So Dr. Wilder was a psychologist, psychiatrist, um, and he was reading and, and doing these studies of um, how does that influence the way we train ourselves as believers and the way we have relationships. And so joy was this piece that brain science was discovering. And, um, and lo and behold, of course, Christ said, for the joy set before me, I endured the cross. So like Jesus knew joy was the big motivation that carried him through. But we as a church had lost what joy was. I mean, when I was growing up, I knew it to be some elusive emotion that somehow I'm supposed to have. And I know it's not happiness because happiness is contingent on happenings, right? And circumstances. So I know it's not happiness, but I have no idea what it is. No idea. So it's elusive. I'm supposed to have it, but I have no idea how to get it. <laughs> it's like, how do you do that, right? So so Dr. Wilder came along and said, you know what? Brain science has actually defined joy for us, and it's going to help us as Christians. And what he says is joy is the feeling you get when someone's glad to be with you, no matter what. So when I walk into a room and see you, Tom, and our eyes meet and we light up, we get this jolt of like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad to see Tom. You know, I'm so glad to see my friend. That right there is joy. And that's what God's all about. Because when we were yet sinners, he died for us. Like, when we were at our worst, he was so glad to be with us that he gave up everything, everything to come live in a human body to die for us while we were yet sinners. So we're that valuable to him and he loves us no matter what. He is the presence of joy. So how do we cultivate that then in our relationships? And so that's where Thrive came in. And they said, you know what? There's actually 19 relational brain skills, not just joy. Joy is the first one. <laughs> Quiet is the next one. And then there's 17 more relational brain skills that we need as humans. If we're going to have healthy, mature relationships with God and with each other and with ourselves. And so Thrive came in and Jen and Chris actually codified, created, and experimented with very specific exercises that we can do as couples and as communities to grow these 19 relational brain skills. So Matt and I, we were seeking all the help we could get because our, our oldest daughter, when she was 10, was struggling with what seemed to be borderline personality disorder tendencies in a country where mental illness was off the charts. Um, so you know, she, she said to us at one point, you, you brought me to Uruguay and you expect me to not have a mental illness. <laughs> it 
was like, oh, bummer, you're right. Um, so we were seeking all of this, everything we could get. And so Thrive came up and and it was our pearl of great price. We went through three years of their uh, premier leadership training uh, program to learn and practice skills that would help us mature and grow um, as Christians. Um, so that's the core. So after that, it was, well, God, how do we be church in a way that actually propagates these skills? Like, isn't that what church is? Isn't church healthy relationship? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. That sounds a lot like relationship to me. So if we took everything out of church that we know, except relationship, loving each other and loving God, what would that look like? And how could we do it in a way that would propagate health and healthy relationships instead of propagating mental illness, narcissism, and spiritual abuse? So that was, that, that's been the last 10 years of our life has <laughs> been that pursuit. Yeah. Well, what, um, just to explore that idea of joy. Um, what, what role does it play, um, in our Christian lives, in our personal lives, in our church mm -hmm. life? Um, I know you've written a book, uh, with a couple other individuals called joy fueled. Mm -hmm. Is it kind of the energy, the, is it the fuel that helps us to live our lives or talk a little bit about joy? Yeah. I, I mean, you know, this might sound heretical and I don't want to be heretical at all. I, although I tend to be but, um, part of me almost wonders. Okay. I'm wondering, I haven't made any conclusions, but I wonder if when we see joy happening, if we're seeing God, the very presence of God himself, even if it's too non believers, right? Enjoying each other. What if that's God, that energy, that beautiful energy flowing back and forth from them is a gift from him because he said we're created in his image. What if that's part of who God is and they just don't even know it, right? Like God is a person. I'm not saying he's an energy, so I'm not new age at all. He is very much a person in the presence of Christ and the Holy Spirit. But what if that that is part of the image bearers that we have is this ability to enjoy one another. And if that really is the essence of who God is, um, I don't know, but I think it's so important that that's the kind of thinking I do about it, right? <laughs> what if it's really God? Um, joy, the, you know, it has the ability to trauma proof us. Um, the more I feel like someone's glad to be with me no matter what, whether it's my parent, if I'm a child, you know, whether it's my parent or, or whether it's God or whether it's me glad to be with me. Like I, I God made me in a, a unique way and I'm really glad to be with myself because <laughs> I'm a creature of God, right? Mm -hmm. So even if it's me glad to be with me, um, that is so powerful that we can endure large amounts of suffering without being traumatized because trauma is when the amount of pain I'm enduring exceeds the amount of joy that I have. So if I have this much joy and my pain levels go up to here, I'm going to be traumatized. But if I have this much joy and the pain's right here, I'm, I'm suffering, but I'm not traumatized. I don't, it doesn't alter who I am. Right? So you look at Jesus on the cross that was suffering. It was huge. It was horrendous. It was terrible, but he didn't lose his self. In that moment, he didn't become someone else. He stayed him, which meant he forgave because that's who he is. He healed because that's what he does. He provided for his mother because that's what he, he did. He, that's the way he was. His, his character didn't change when he was under suffering because it didn't exceed the amount of joy he had. 
And it's for the joy set before him. And we can only imagine that joy was the, the thought of being with us again, whole, redeemed. Like that was so powerful. That vision he had, that image, he could almost taste being with us again, man. And, and he would endure anything. And we need that that kind of resilience, right? And I think joy is that. If we don't have joy, we will not have that resilience. But if we build it intentionally, we're going to be a people of God that can suffer a lot and still remain forgiving, loving, kind people that we need to be. Well, as you talk, I'm reminded of that passage in John where he talks about um, they'll know you by your love for one another. And I wonder, is are they witnessing that joy, that peace that love that it's just like a magnet and so if they see that and, and I kind of wonder that's going to be more and more re relevant in our yes. increasingly crazy world um, where you know whether it's pandemics or economic problems or persecution mm. that people really need to get a, a handle on that joy yeah and and specifically I mean you're going there but I'm going to go there um, you know, look at our church. I mean, we have a whole Episcopal denomination that, you know, that really believes it's okay to be gay and be a priest and, and be in the ministry and be a Christian and have one marriage for life and have children. And then you have a whole different sector of the church that says that's sinful and terrible and they're wrong, right? Do these, do these two groups love each other? Do these, are these two groups glad to be together no matter what? Can they be glad to be together in their differences and actually talk about the differences, have meaningful dialogue with each other about those differences, knowing that they might continue to disagree? Or do they throw stones at each other, hate each other, and polarize themselves against each other? Because that is devastating. And Christ is not seen in that. How, how is he seen? They'll know, they'll know your mind by your love for each other. Hmm. That doesn't seem like that's going to be very helpful. Same thing, like you said, with politics. If we've got Christians who are going to be Democrats and extreme Democrats and Christians are going to be extreme Republicans and they're going to hate each other, throw stones at each other, badmouth each other on Facebook, that's not very loving. <laughs> so joy would be, I'm, look, even though you totally disagree with me on uh, vaccination, even though you totally disagree with me on how to care for the poor, even though you totally disagree with me, can we still be glad to be together? Or is that impossible? And if that is impossible, our church is in trouble because we don't have the maturity or the love that would show God to the world. And that needs to be spoken and dealt with because that is absolutely devastating our nation right now. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about there is a study that came out in 2015, uh, found that six, uh, 65 million people had left traditional churches. Uh, why is that happening? Is that connected to some of the things you've already talked about? I think it is. I think it is. Um, but interestingly, the ones that that um, the, the book talks about who were who left were actually elders and leaders, not, you know, because a lot of us would think, oh yeah, it's the next generation, right? Because they're more liberal. So they've left the church, you know, so you, you tend to think that because that is true too. I mean, they, most of our children and children's children haven't come because they just don't even see the point. But we're, the, the 65 million people were, were pastors, teachers, missionaries, leaders, elders in this, this, body of Christ all over the whole United States, and they've walked away. And I think they've walked away because they, and, and it says in the book, um, that they stated 
they weren't finding true community there. They weren't finding true relational connection in, in those environments. And I honestly think that the way in the institution is structured in and of itself goes against the very things that people in that institution want to see happen. So I don't think it's neg you know, I don't think any pastors or any Christians want to create something that is not helpful. <laughs> but the reality is that the existing church as we know her is not helping people grow relational skills. And, and all of these elder level people who've left the church realized this and they realized I gave my life to this and it's not helping me mature. I'm not seeing anyone else grow and mature. My kids and grandkids have already left. And you know what? If I'm going to be Christ in the world relationally in a way that builds relational skills, it's going to have to be done differently. And they walk away. But most of them have no idea how to do it. And so they just walk away and start living Jesus in their neighborhood, which is wonderful, and in their workplace, which is beautiful as well. But what if there was a way to be church at different community levels, right, in larger connecting organization, organizational ways that actually does propagate the relational skills. You know, as we're talking, I wonder is what's happened in the culture, maybe this is a rabbit trail, but because people didn't leave the church before for these reasons. And I wonder if there are certain pressures, the, you know, we don't live kind of in a post-Christian, post-modern world, um, that those structures worked at a period of time, but now we need, we don't have the supports. So we really need to have those wow. deeper relationships. I don't know. Wow. I mean, you are, you are so, you're, you're, you're going into territory. You have no clue what you're about to unlock. No. <laughs> um, so, I mean, think, you know, from a sociological perspective, you know, my brain still goes there, right? I mean, I, I definitely think that you're right. I definitely think that we could point to cultural factors of the disintegration of the family, the disintegration of society, you know, but we can also point to factors of the liberation of women and underprivileged people that because you know, those who had been oppressed in a church setting now have the resources to not stay in those oppressive places, that maybe that's why it's breaking apart as well. Um, but I think something else has happened. Um, and I think that it has a lot to do with organizational development and organizational paradigms. Um, because over the course of history, and you even see this in the Bible, if you look at the people of God throughout the entire scripture, the way God organizes them and the way they evolve organizationally throughout the scriptures to when Christ comes, he is pronouncing a whole new way of organizing themselves that is radically different than the temple, radically different than a rules-based, duty-driven structure, radically different. Jesus invites us to a whole different game. And historically, the organizations have followed similar paths. And, and I mean, I don't even know if it's worthy to say, but I get a lot of this out of Reinventing Organizations. It's a, a book, I can't even pronounce his name, by Frederick Lolo, maybe, L-O-U-X. But this book has been so helpful for me in understanding what I think is happening because what I think is happening is I think that the, the general culture, at least in the United States, is kind of catching up to almost become evolved to where Christ was when he came 2,000 years ago. The church was almost, I mean, it might have been there for the first century, but as soon as people mandated Christianity, 
the the way that Jesus was organizing his church was was killed. I mean, it was basically killed or went underground. And so since then, something else has been this guilt-ridden, duty-driven sort of structure and institution has come into place where God all along is still calling his people to follow him instead of institution, follow him instead of rules, be grace-oriented and joy-fueled instead of duty-driven, right? So you've seen those movements all these years, but the structure of the church was one that was similar to the structure of the world. It was conforming to the world instead of letting Jesus be the one who was conforming it. And I think that there's something special about elders when, when people hit 50 and 60 and we've been giving our life sacrificially to create a new reality and create communities and we start to see what works and what doesn't work, we look forward and we go, you know, what? we only have so much time left and we need to make it count. And this is not going to happen. I'm not going to be able to change this beast, but maybe I can walk away and find a, a different path. And I think God is on the move calling out his people into this new that wasn't new because he brought it when he when he came <laughs> but this more evolved way of being a society together which is based on love and I think the you know for lack of um, honestly the liberal the liberal people in in our culture have a lot of that in their flavor I mean they they taste a lot like Jesus when they talk about loving each other and caring for the poor and being there and listening listening to the oppressed I mean Half of what they say is very similar to the paradigm that Jesus wanted to bring, but it's not all of it, right? It's part of it. And, and because it's not quite evolved enough yet, <laughs> and there's a huge jump to make that a lot of them maybe aren't ready to make, but a lot of Christians who have left the institution are ready to make, and they're ready to follow Jesus at whatever cost that might take into this new way of love being the basis instead of this rules-based, duty-driven, hierarchical structure. It's a long yeah. answer. I don't know how you think well, about that. Yeah, know it's, clear. yeah, in a sense, are we moving um, more of an organic, I mean, kind of like you read the book, The Early Church. It was really household-based, very relational. Um, is that kind of where we're heading back to in a sense? or what people yeah, are really yeah. hungry. And, and as yeah. you mentioned, the family is breaking down significantly. So they don't have those normal experiences. Like you, yeah. I mean, you talk about emotional development that, that happens in the home early on. And if you don't have a healthy home situation, you're not gonna get that. So people are hungering for that because they never got it almost. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. And in the beginning, it was because the Jewish religion was very house based. It was family based. It happened at home. Um, you know, every Sabbath was at, around the dinner table in the homes. And that's where the principal education of your children and, and the women in the family, of course, was happening was in the house. So I think institutionalizing our faith took it out of the home and into some building separated us. And there were reasons why they did that back in the day. But those reasons no longer exist. We don't need to be separated as families anymore because life separates us as families. You know, every day we're separate from our children. So, you know, at some point in the last 2000 years, you know, it was necessary for us to start thinking, how do we get this into our homes and back into our homes and out of the building? <laughs> because as long as it's in the building, it's not gonna, it's not gonna be relevant. 
to anyone. And it's not going to create effective change because character development happens because I'm practicing skills relating to you and loving you every single day, not just once a week, right? So yeah, I see, and the the organizational piece to this is while while this more liberal, what I'll call green, what well, what they call green paradigm, the more liberal green paradigm, what it's lacking is the ability to look at the other paradigms and include them as well. It wants to exclude them. It wants really to, to if you're a Republican, we want to we want to just shut you down and make you be quiet. We want to take your voice out, right? Let's take out the voice of the white man. Let's take out the voice because it's been so damaging and so hurtful, right? But but really, Jesus's paradigm, which has kind of evolved more, even more than that one, says, you know what? Why don't we include all the voices, all of them, even the even the oppressor's voice? Because in Jesus's paradigm, he has compassion for both the victim and the oppressor. He can do that. And, and large amounts of joy and large amounts of maturity allow us to do that as elders in a community. And so we can hold those tensions. We can bring people to the table who disagree. We can have compassion for all of them and hopefully create a new reality we never thought possible because we can listen to God too. So it's a, it's a huge way. I think it's a huge paradigm shift that's necessary. The world is in a birthing moment where they're either going to kill each other or something new will emerge or both. Maybe we kill each other and something new emerges. I'm not sure. But I think Jesus wants to lead that something new because he already did when he came and he's ushering it. I mean, he's really bringing at least the United States into a, an invitation, a huge invitation to grow and to be church again in our homes, even if that home is, you know, my, my adopted family, right? Because maybe my family wasn't healthy enough. And so I have some friends that I hang out with. Great. Like, go for it. Whatever way you are family, let's radically go after being it healthy as close to daily as possible and practicing these, these skills. So we grow up. Well, that's, that's a good uh, segue to talk about loop 10. What is loop 10? How did you get involved with it? Um, kind of, it's vision, mission, distinctives. Um, let's just talk a little bit about that. Great. So there we were in Uruguay. This was seven, seven years ago now, Matt and I, actually nine years ago. Um, and we were begging God, okay, we know about relational skill training. We know how to build joy now. We know how to help people connect to God, which is awesome. Um, but we don't know how to be church <laughs> like this in a way that helps um, families cultivate these skills, right? Because we know a Bible study isn't going to do that. I mean, not that we shouldn't do Bible study. We should. I mean, we should, we should study the Bible as Jesus leads us to. We should talk about that. We should feed the poor, like all the good things that the church does. We definitely need to practice and do, but those great things still don't, prop, don't help me love better. They don't help me personally grow what I need to grow in order to love without burning out, for example, to serve the poor without burning out. So how do we be church together daily in a way that fuels us so that we can continue sacrificially giving, loving, doing all the things that, that, that we want to do and love to do, like study the word and be, be with the poor and everything in between. And I happened upon John White, um, who's one of the founders of Luke 10, on a random call with Life Model Works one day. And I heard I heard him talking and saw him kind of facilitate and coach the facilitator in such a way that I just was drawn to him. And I knew I need to know this man. He has what we're missing. He has what we're missing. And I texted him. 
that day and he said, let's zoom. And so my husband and, and I and, and John zoomed and John started talking about this weird thing called a church of two. What would a church of two look like? You know, actually, he, in his wonderfully coaching fashion, asked us a million questions. You know, well, how small do you have to be to be church? And we're like, oh, we don't know. He's <laughs> like, well, then the Bible says something about <laughs> wherever two or three are gathered. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's like here we are, church planters for 15 years. And we're like, I don't know. Um, and then he says, so if two or three are gathered together, what makes them church? And we're like, well, we have no idea. We have no idea what we'd have to do to actually be considered church if we were together. We're like, read the Bible, pray. Like, I don't know. And he says, well, I mean, what's a great command? What's <laughs> a great commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. So what could you do together that would actually build your ability, your capacity to do those two things? And of course, we're clueless. We have no idea here. 15 years on the mission field, master's degrees in church planting, and we are clueless. And he says, well, why don't you take our course <laughs> called Church 101? And, you know, I'll send you the files because they didn't have they didn't have anything except some files that they had put together at that point. And he said, and we'll just talk about those files. We'll get together and talk about what you're learning. And when we started doing that, um, you know, the first thing we introduced is this concept of a church of two, where you practice two rhythms as close to daily as possible um, to build that ability to love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. So it's not the, the, the practices aren't the magic, right? The practices aren't um, the sacred thing as um, they're not the, the end result, right? They are a means to the end, which is to love. Um, and these are just two practices that we have found and that Luke 10 has found that have are really the two biggest bangs for your buck, if you're going to say, right? Like if I only could do two things a day to build my ability to live Christ in the world, what would those two things be? And it was so simple, so simple, because how many of us have the next program, the next thing I'm supposed to teach, the next thing I'm supposed to, you know, now I'm going to practice this in my life and practice that. And there's a million things out there to grab a hold of and practice. So this became simple. And we had four, three children and another one that we adopted not long after. And so, you know, we don't have a lot of time. <laughs> and it's got to be so easy and simple and reproducible that we can do it with our children as well. So two rhythms as close to daily as possible, because that gets the skill piece in there so that my body's trained for righteousness, not just my mind, but my body habitually now does these rhythms because we practice them daily. And they were checking in on a heart to heart level where we share our emotions and we don't correct each other. We don't fix each other. We don't, uh, you know, tell me, tell me, invalidate, you know, tell me why I shouldn't be feeling that way. We literally just share, this is what I'm feeling. And then we're glad to be with each other, no matter what we're feeling. So we're building joy and we're also building some self-awareness with myself around what are these things called emotions that do control me, even though I'm not even aware of them. They're there. So let's bring them out to the light so that then we can do something with them. Because if we deny them and ignore them, they're actually going to control us. <laughs> so let's share them. So checking in and then listening to God together, which, you know, again, 15 years on the mission field two years in church planting, another 10 years in ministry before that in church, in, in our church ministry back home. And we didn't know how to listen to God together. No one had ever, ever, ever taught us how to hear God's voice together. It was absolutely sad and yet radically amazing at the same time that we could do that. 
um, when we discovered that we could literally listen to God together, um, you know, it was, we went through a grieving period because, you know, my husband will share the story that when he was a teenager and he came to Christ, um, the only time that he had to see his dad was right before school in the mornings, like 15, 20 minutes before school in the mornings, because his dad worked late nights and all kinds of things. And he, he only lived with his dad, but he was told that he had to have a quiet time first time and first thing in the morning by the church. And so he literally at 14, 15 had to make a decision. Am I going to see my dad in the morning or am I going to see God and be a good Christian and have a quiet time in the morning? And he chose God. And, you know, because that's what he was supposed to do to grow in his faith. And so here he missed these beautiful moments with his dad. And then a, a year and a half later, his dad moved across the country and he started college and slipped into depression. And, you know, we wonder why, you know. So when we go through the study and now he realizes, you mean I could have actually used that 20 minutes to listen to God with my dad? Like it could have been both and. I could have had eye contact with my dad, enjoyed who he was, and we could have listened to God together. <laughs> Boom, you know, and that's when you you start to grieve. Like, why didn't we know this beforehand? Why why didn't why doesn't anyone talk about this in the church? Right? Why don't we listen to God instead of just talk to Him all the time, or come up with our own plans and strategies for doing things? So when Matt and I, um, with John White in in our living room in Uruguay, South America, discovered these rhythms. We were blown away. The other thing he told us that was fundamentally different than anything we ever heard was, Tony, you and your husband and your children are already a church. Mm. You're already a church. You're the church that meets in Tony's house. You don't have to have more people in that room for it to be valid. And that blew us away. I remember crying the first time he said that. Because for years, as most missionaries do, you neglect your own children to get more people in your house because it's not valid until you've got your neighbors in there or your friends in there or other adults in there. So until I've got like 20 adults in my room, I'm not really a good church planter, right? But in order to have 20 adults in my room whom I am caring for emotionally because most of them were so broken, I had to reparent half of them. I have to neglect my own little children in order to do that. So here again, you're setting up couples with small children for for abuse for really really their children being neglected and having even more health problems and so that was freeing to go wow you mean my children are my church and that's valid and God thinks that's enough yeah <laughs> yeah he does so we restructured our entire ministry in Uruguay so that we would train leaders to be church in their own families not to come to my house and need me to give to them and need me to parent them and need me to be anything for them. We trained them to do that for each other with a CO2. So now I didn't have to disciple them. I gave them the ability to disciple each other, to go into their house and every day of the week, check in and listen together. So simple. Anyone can do it. My kids can do it. Any new believer can do it. Even non-Christians were, were checking in with each other daily and building that relational component before they even knew Jesus. So it restructured us to save our family. So that's a little about Luke 10. That's how we came into Luke 10. Um, and after that, when we, we left the mission field for our children and our own mental health, um, we came back to the States. I took a year sabbatical, um, just trying to figure out what God had for my future because I didn't want to leave Uruguay. I was just starting to grow um, you know, a consulting business down there in schools, helping schools understand what joy was and build uh, community among their teachers. 
So it was devastating to be ripped out of that at such a wonderful moment in my career and be plopped in the United States where no one cared what I had to say. Um, because I was in Nashville, Tennessee, which has a, a million churches on every corner and uh, more Christians, you know, beyond that. Um, and I thought, God, what do you want for me? And I felt drawn to Luke 10 and um, that vision to see a vibrant family of Jesus within reach of every single person on the planet. Um, what would that look like for, for little families like mine um, who validated their expression of church enough that they nurtured it every single day, that they took time to check in emotionally and love each other heart to heart, that they took time to listen to Jesus together. What do you have for us? Who do you want us to reach out to? What do you think about us? How do you love us today? How do we help our sibling? You know, everything that we can listen to God about and that we became so vibrant that then we would overflow to the people around us. What if there was one of those within reach of every single person on the planet? And that got me very excited. <laughs> and then the second thing, the mission is we do that by, by equipping, connecting and equipping spiritual moms and dads to nurture these types of ecosystems of grace, these types of families. So um, I love to train. Um, that's, that's been a heart's uh, a gifting of mine um, to be able to break things down into skill level approach and be able to help people. I was an athlete, so I just do that really well. Um, and Luke 10 had a course and they had no idea what they were going to do with it. And the course needed to be rewritten. And the only thing Luke 10 was just John White and Kent Smith. <laughs> it was like two men <laughs> trying to figure out what it is that God had for this organization. And, um, I was at the right place at the right time. That's all I have to say, um, to be able to come in and help them develop, um, that course. And then some training pathways for spiritual moms and dads to actually train, to be able to facilitate these types of communities and nurture them. You talked about, um, you and Matt, uh, your husband, um, not knowing how to listen together, was it, or hear the Lord together? What, how did that, what does that look like when one does that? Yeah. So before it looked like him going away by himself and me going away by myself, right? Maybe listening as much as we knew how at the time, hearing what we heard, and then coming back together and sharing journal entries. So we had gotten that far, which is a lot farther than most couples probably get. <laughs> And we had been doing that our whole life, you know, since we met. Um, but listening together, first of all, believe it or not, even with all that history that him and I had, it was uh, hard. Um, it was intimate. And there was, we realized there was some untrusting parts in each one of us. Um, so when you even think about checking in together as a couple or listening together as a couple, you're going to hit foundational cracks in your relationship pretty quickly. And it's going to assess very quickly where you are, where you really are as a couple, because we can pretend we can, we can live in detente. We can live like everything's okay. And everyone thinks that we're doing really well, <laughs> but when you check in and one of you doesn't want to share because they feel like they're going to be judged, you're like, Oh, wow. We know where this relationship really is. <laughs> or when you want to listen to Jesus, but one feels scared, because what if this person doesn't think I'm hearing from God or what if they don't like what I hear or, you know, are they going to make fun of me? You know, like this is very intimate. So it was a process. Um, but, you know, what does it look like now? You know, we, we both are skilled at sensing God's presence. So it looks, um, it looks like, Hey, well, I'll give you a very clear example. <laughs> Our daughters in Uruguay, my 
my husband's father had just passed away and we, him and I had come to the States to do the funeral. We arrived back in Uruguay. We walk into the house. Our bags are still packed. And our daughter says, who was 13, 12 or 13 at the time says, I can't live here one more day. I'm going to slip my wrist if you don't get me out of this country now. And we look at each other and we're like, we need to go listen to God right now. <laughs> and we go to the kitchen and we had another member of our community there because they had been taking care of our children. And we said, we need to listen to God right now because this is so big. And because we had been, we practiced all of us, this, this was seamless. So we said, okay, we went to an appreciation memory, each one of us individually while we're sitting there. And we said, okay, let's set the timer for four minutes and just ask God what he wants us to know about this situation, right? So we're just sitting in silence and I, I get an image of our daughter um, years before when we had just gotten back from the United States from a trip to the States and she was going to a birthday party and didn't want to stay by herself. And I didn't want to stay with her because I was tired. We had no grandparents anymore. We had no family. I was exhausted and I was going to rest while she was at this party. And I didn't want to sit at that party with her. And I didn't have the maturity as a mom to realize that she need, I needed to do that for her. Like it was a terrible parenting moment. One of the worst parenting moments I have ever had that to this day, I, I can cry when I think about how bad it was. I won't go into the detail, but I, I didn't stay with her and she ended up coming home. And she didn't go to that party. So God brings that memory to my mind. And he's, and I hear the words very clearly in my head. You abandoned your daughter that day, but you have skill now and you don't have to abandon her again. Don't abandon her. Mm. And I was, I dropped to my knees and I started bawling my eyes out. Now, my husband had been hearing, we need to leave Uruguay for months but he wasn't going to tell me because he knew that I'm so stubborn. The only way he's getting me out of that country is if I hear it straight from Jesus himself. <laughs> so of course, when we bowed our head, he's hearing, you need to go home. You need to go home. And he's going, well, you're going to have to tell her, Jesus, you're going to have to tell her. Right. And our other friend, you know, heard it's going to be okay. You know, follow me. It's going to be okay. So we, we share, we, we get up and we share. And of course they're going, what's going on with you? And I'm like, we got to leave. And they're like, what? <laughs> Matt's freaking out because he had been praying that God would show me <laughs> and God showed me um, and made it very clear to me emotionally, right. That I needed to step up and I needed to be there for her and quit putting my emotional needs before my daughter. Um, so that was, that was really, really um, hard, but a beautiful moment where um, that practice of listening to God daily with Matt paid off, right? Because that's the goal. We practice so that when we're in the game, we have the skill to play it well. Had we had never been practicing listening to God together, how would we have navigated that moment? My goodness. And we definitely wouldn't have navigated it like that. Within an hour, we knew exactly what we were doing. Within four weeks, we were out of that country. Mm. It was amazing after a 15-year career. So it was definitely God moving us <laughs> So what does it look like for us every day? I mean, in the practice of it, um, it looks like him call, me calling him on the way home from dropping off the kids and checking in together on the phone. And then I park, I get home usually when we're done checking in and we say three minutes and we set the timer and he's at work on a construction site and he pulls away with a pen and I've got my pen and we say, Jesus, anything you want us to know about today or about our daughter or about whatever issue we've checked in around, right? And then we get back on the phone and we share two minutes and then we're like, okay, love you. Bye. And that's it. 
And then for us, it looks like checking in around the dinner table with our kids every day. And some days we listen together and some days we don't. Um, sometimes we take seasons where we listen every night at dinner. So that's usually Lent every year during Lent. We will covet for 40 days of listening together as a family over dinner. Um, and then during the year, it's maybe once a week, usually on Sundays, or I listen at bedtime with them individually. Um, they tend to like that a little better to listen individually with mommy than all of us together. I don't know if it's easier for them or not, but that's what it looks like to live that as family for us. I mean, that's that's pretty foreign to lots of uh, traditional evangelicalism, I think, uh, mm -hmm. to listen or in, in general. Um, you know, and some people say, well, God only speaks through the Bible or different things. How, how does that work for you in practice? Or how do you get to the place where you sense that, okay, God is now speaking, you know, you ask the question and you're quiet and it sounds like uh, God kind of speaks to you through images or. Yeah, I used Dan, I used Dan Siegel, who's a psych, a, a, just a really incredible psychologist. I used his acronym SIFT. So I sift my mind, which stands for any spontaneous sensations, images, feelings, or thoughts. Some people even said, you just know something you didn't know before. Like it could be like in your bones, you just know something, right? So it's really hard to describe, obviously, how different people encounter this presence. And I think that really you build confidence that you're hearing from God when you practice in community. Um, and other people are hearing the same things and you go, oh, so I did just hear God because that person heard the same thing. And then you heard it. And you, mm -hmm. So you learn that was God. And then you learn to listen to that type of feeling or sensation or image. And then it continues to be confirmed, which is why the communal aspect is so, so important because we get confirmation from others that, yeah, that sounds like God or no, 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 no. That doesn't sound like God at all. <laughs> We need, you need to not listen to that voice. <laughs> so we definitely go, is it, is it scriptural? You know, does it agree with what we know the Bible to say? Um, you know, does the community go, yeah, that sounds like my experience of God. That sounds like God to me. Um, and then the other, the other way we kind of weigh it is, did I experience an emotional shift towards shalom or towards love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, right? Because the fruit of the spirit is all of those things. So if the spirit is actually moving in me, the fruit it will produce will be those emotions, right? So if I am um, stressed or upset or grieving or whatever, and then I listen to God and now I feel peace and I feel energy and I feel calmed, then wow, that's probably an indication that the Holy Spirit just showed up because Satan's not going to give you that type of emotion. That's not his, his goal in life. <laughs> his is, I think, to kill, uh, steal and destroy. <laughs> so that's, that, that kind of helps you know. And you know, and even when we work with non-Christians, we work with that vocabulary. You know, Muslims, you know, do you want peace? Because I know peace. I know truth and I know peace and I can help you connect with peace if you want peace. So when we're working with Afghanistan's or anyone coming out of trauma and we're helping them find peace, they can connect to our Holy Spirit and find peace. They might not name it the Holy Spirit yet, but the more they connect to God that way, God will reveal himself to them. He's very faithful at doing that. Just like he revealed himself to Paul and other people, Cornelius and lots of other people in the scriptures. He's faithful to do that when people are seeking peace and truth. It's beautiful. You talk about checking in. What does that look like? You know, kind of 
nuts and bolts. Uh, I know uh, Lupin has sachet and maybe talk a little about that. Oh, okay. Okay, great. So yeah, the nuts and bolts. Um, you know, we encourage couples, especially who are practicing this daily to, to set a timer because you know, it, it's kind of funny, you know, you might have such a good day one day and you might end up going 30 or 45 minutes and you loved it, but then you wake up the next day and you're like, I don't have time for that. And so you don't practice because it took too long the day before. And so we just caution people to like start with really small goals of like, let's spend 10 minutes, Max, let's set the timer. I'm going to share for two minutes. You share for two minutes and share how you're feeling. And so how do we do that? We take a deep breath. Sometimes we think about how our body is. Do I have to go to the bathroom? Am I hot or am I cold? Um, because that helps us get more in touch with our emotions. And then um, we do use the acronym SACHET. Some people hate it, but it's there and any acronym will work, but sad, angry, scared, happy, excited, and tender. It just gives you a good, um, a good flavor, right? Of different emotions that you can, you can draw on if you need help thinking of an emotion word. Um, and so it would look like this. I would say, you know, I'm checking in today as tender, excited, and thankful. So I'm tender because um, my 21 year old daughter is in a lot of pain right now. And that makes my heart feel tender for her. Um, I'm excited because um, one of my good friends who's a brother to me just started training as a facilitator and I can't wait to see what God's going to do through him. And I had a meeting with him earlier today. And what was the last thing I said? Do you remember? Thankful. And I'm thankful. Um, I'm so thankful for my 12 and 11 year old. Um, every single time I'm with them, I am so happy to be with them. And they're just really great kids. And they're not misbehaving yet. <laughs> like, you know, I even asked them yesterday. I'm like, okay, most kids your age are sneaking phones to the bedroom right now and like stealing computer time. And I'm like, what's up with y'all? Why are you not misbehaving? <laughs> and they said to me, well, mom, one of them said, it's because you're going to, you fix it. If I, if I misbehave, you fix it. And I don't like the way you fix it. <laughs> and then the other one says, yeah, I don't want to suffer any consequences. I'm fine as I am. Thank you. I don't need to sneak <laughs> But like, that's just who they are. They're such good kids. So I'm really just enjoying them to the fullest uh, right now, every chance I can when I'm with them. So deeply thankful for this season of life with those two, two the two littlest. Um, so that was it. That might've been two minutes. Maybe it was a little more. Um, and I say, I'm in. And then I would say, Tom, how are you feeling? And um, if you wanted to ask me clarifying questions, you could, you know, but if we're on a timer, you know, if we're trying to do this short, you wouldn't. I would just go straight from me to you. How are you feeling today? Do you want to check in? <laughs> just to model it. <laughs> oh, I'm uh, I'm excited. Uh, it's great chatting with you. It's something I look forward to. So that's one thing I would say. All right. And then you're done and you say, I'm in. I'm in. And then we, at that point, we could listen together um, and ask God how he feels about this podcast or how he feels about my kids or how he feels about, and then anything he wants us to know about these things, right? Maybe there's other ways we can use the podcast. How does he want it? What does he want us to do with this podcast or use it, right? So these are obviously questions you're going to find in the Bible. 
you're not going to find in the Bible how to use this podcast, right? So we're not looking for Bible knowledge because we get that when we read the Bible and share the scriptures and share stories of our faith together. This is coaching. We are entering into a relationship with God where he's coaching us right now on how to show up in the world, how to make an impact with the, the gifts and skills he's given us and the people around us, uh, those resources. So we're in. And usually in that listening time, if there were heavy emotions, Jesus usually speaks to them for us. And that has been the most beautiful part about the marriage piece for me is that my husband will check in often heavy and I get anxious when he's heavy because I feel like oh, I've got to make him not be anxious or what is it? Or I'll be like, why is he always looking at the negative? Right? So like, I'll get <laughs> frustrated. But when I know we're going to listen to Jesus immediately afterward, Jesus always loves him, sees him, and corrects him if he needs it. And then when we come back and share what we heard, I get to see that. I'm like, oh my goodness, look at Jesus loving him, seeing him, and correcting him. And then I get relieved, and I don't feel like it's my job to do those things in his life. I just get to witness God doing them in his life, if that makes sense. So so how would a family, if they really wanted to to learn more about doing this in their family. Uh, I know Luke 10 fiber family is a little broader than your, your marriage and your biological family or whatever. Um, how, how would you recommend people pursue this? Yeah. Well, the, the book joy fueled catalyzing a revolution of joyful communities is a great starting place. And in that book is a free resource called 30 days to joy. And it is the whole course in an article <laughs> with the practices so that if, you, if you're like, I don't have time for a course, I just want to like get the nitty gritty, you can get the book or, or even go on Amazon and find the free downloadable 30 day joy, 30 days to joy, and just implement that with your family, print it out and start living it, right? However, you guys want to do that. But we do offer the course and the course um, if you go to lk10.com, you find um, an intro call where you and your wife or, or just one of you shows up to hear um, an introduction for what you're in for. But it's a, it's a facilitated group once a week for six weeks. And in that facilitated group, we check in together and we listen together. So it's a place where you get to try these things with people other than your family because Sometimes that's a lot easier because the people on the call that you'll that will join you want this. They want to practice. They want to be there, whereas sometimes your family does not want to be there. <laughs> and sometimes your family doesn't want to practice this. So we provide a community of practice for those moms and dads out there who want to learn to be this way with their families um, and they can grow their own skill while they're trying to implement this maybe in a different context uh, with people who might not be fully on board yet. <laughs> That makes sense. So then the church of two would be, be, be you and your spouse. Definitely. I would highly suggest that unless that's not possible, which it's not a lot of times. I and mean, we've done this for so many years. And I'm telling you that the couples that can actually do this well are few and far between um, because there's so much hurt in their relationship. So, but yes, ideally that would be it. But if that is not the case, that's okay. You can grab a mom, a dad, a daughter, a son, a best friend. Um, and, and your church of two can be someone else that maybe you have more trust and less hurt with. Um, but we do suggest that your church of two is someone that you're planning on being 
um, in their life forever or for this lifetime um, because you get really close to people. And if you're only thinking, oh, I'm just going to disciple this person and we're going to do this for six months or a year, um, that that might not end well um, because you're you're bonding with people emotionally and spiritually and um, and leaving a bond that intense can be damaging emotionally for people. So it, you definitely want to do this with someone that you like a lot and you want to be in your life <laughs> for the long haul. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So, so then and then the checking in and the listening in the family, maybe do it over a meal or have a special time where you're, I know one of the videos Luke 10 has is a, a fellow, a father who shared how it impacted his family yeah. by uh, doing this on a regular basis. The young children really heard the Lord pretty, pretty easily. Wow. And uh, we're even to the place where they looked forward to hearing mom and dad share what their emotions were and so forth. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the dinner table is a great place. You know, again, I think we're Jesus led. And so we would say, mom and dad, listen and ask Jesus how to implement this in your family and where, what would work best for your kids and your, your schedules and things. Um, my kids, they didn't have an, it wasn't easy for them to listen. Um, they, and we started when they were two and three, the little ones, mm-hmm. and they would listen through doing artwork or building blocks. My son loved to build structures and my daughter loved to draw and my teen loved to listen to music or poetry. And so that was kind of, even though it was a five minute listening, that's what they would do. And then of course they would ask for more time and more time. And we could be there 30 minutes listening to God at the table with a two and three-year-old because they're so into their drawing or their, their structure. And then we would go around the circle and say, well, did you sense anything from God? And most of the time, hands down, my kids would be like, nope. (laughs) And so it was beautiful because I learned to say, well, I'm curious, how do you think God feels about what you did? And, and their face would light up and they would, they kind of look like embarrassed and happy. And you could see they were feeling it through their whole body. And, um, and they just do, do this with their eyes. And, and you would say, you think he's happy with you, don't you? And they'd be like, yeah. And so they could feel his pleasure, even though they, they didn't hear anything necessarily, they could feel his pleasure over their creativity and what they were doing. So that was one thing that was a way to, to kind of grasp a little bit of how they experienced God. The other thing was, um, I sense the Lord tell me, um, at some point in this 12 year journey with our kids now, um, Tony, it's, it, it really isn't even important if your children hear me right now. It's mm-hmm. not. What is important is that you are building a, a habit in their body and in their brain to turn to me every day, every day. And that is a skill. You're training their body for righteousness. Their body will long for it when they grow up. They're going to get in their own families one day. And if they're not checking in and listening, they're going to feel like something's missing because that's the only thing they've ever known. (laughs) So you're actually building a physical skill into them that will turn their hearts to me later in their life without even realizing it. So yes, obviously I want them to hear from God now and they do, but when you hit those seasons where it doesn't feel like they're hearing from God at all, uh, that was the encouragement God gave me was it's about the habit. It's about the skill being built. Let me handle what, what I do with them and what I don't do with them and how they hear me and how they don't hear me. Like, you don't have to worry about that. (laughs) I got that. I'm like, okay. Yeah. So, so you're practicing with them checking in and listening, even if they may not catch what the listening might actually be. Yeah. We check in every single day, like I said, and sometimes we'll listen once a week, usually until we do Lent and then we'll listen every day. And that's just what Jesus led us to as a family that feels 
that okay. feels doable for them. And then I will listen with them whenever they hit a wall emotionally, we will do a manual. We will go to appreciation. We practice appreciation stories together too. So, and they will find Jesus in their, um, in their trauma, in their, their sad moments. I have a podcast called Joy Field and Jesus Led. And in that podcast, I share these stories of praying with my children and then finding Jesus, getting healing. I mean, it is beautiful. And they tend to do that really well. And I think the only reason they do that well is because we practice this listening every single day, even though they might not hear anything every day. So again, they're building the skill so that in the game, when it really counts in life, they can hear him like that, even though they might not hear him every day when we listen, right? All right. Well, what the last element of uh, Luke 10 is the 10 to be prayer. Maybe just share a little bit about what that is and how yeah. that mixes. That, that shifted um, everything as far as church planting goes. Um, and it really turns everything. I think most ministers, most missionaries have been taught on, on, on its head. Um, in Luke 10, Jesus draws his disciples to himself and he says, um, the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are fruit. Are, are few. Um, but he doesn't look at them and say, so get busy and work hard. Isn't that fascinating? <laughs> and he doesn't say, go burn yourselves out because that's what holy looks like. But that's what all of us were taught to do somehow. I was taught to sacrifice it all, give everything I have and burn myself out fast, or I wasn't holy. Because if I have my needs met, something's wrong with me. If I have my needs met, that means I'm not sacrificing enough. It means I'm not giving enough for God. So it's impossible for me to really have my needs met. That is so sick and twisted. And I lived that for 15 years on the mission field. So this concept that Jesus called them to himself and said, the harvest is plentiful, labors are few. Beg the Lord of the harvest to send out more labors like you, like Beg the Lord of the harvest for more laborers who are equipped to labor in the harvest. So that turns everything on its edge because it says, you know what? It doesn't begin with me. It begins with God. God's going to call these workers. I actually get to work only what I'm supposed to do and then be able to rest and play and be with my family and be vibrant. And I get my needs met because I'm going to be begging God to send out more people like me, <laughs> vibrant families of Jesus, not worn down and burnt out families of Jesus, <laughs> but he's going to raise up other vibrant families of Jesus. And if I don't see them, it doesn't mean I need to work harder, slave more, manipulate people into the harvest or what, you know, <laughs> dot, dot, dot. But I just get to pray and beg God to bring those laborers. And as he brings them, I get to connect them to each other and equip them if they need equipping. So that is freeing, hugely freeing for most people in missions and ministry. And it is a huge part of what we do. So uh, maybe talk about what the harvest field is, because I think sometimes we think it's foreign missions or. Yeah, totally. For me, the harvest field is um, shalom in this world. It is the fruit of the spirit. It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control being uh, harvested um, out, of, out of this world that we live in. And it can mean bringing people to Christ because that obviously leads to love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. but it is, it is so much more than just seeing a soul convert to Christianity. It is seeing people experiencing um, the shalom that God has to give. I believe the harvest is the shalom, this, the, the fruit of the spirit out there in the world, ready to be harvested. And it takes 
it takes his people to bring it out, to bring it in. Um, and the harvest, it, you know, it, it, for example, I mean, my own children are a harvest field and I can beg God to send laborers into my daughter's life who's 21 and lives 45 minutes from me because she's not listening to us anymore. She's on her own and she's ready to do her own thing. But God, bring a labor, bring a labor into her life to reap love, joy, peace, and patience in her soul, to reap it out, to induce it, to call it forth in her life. And that's really my hope at this point that she'll come really to be able to experience his love is that he'll bring laborers into her life right? Bring laborers into my neighborhood, bring laborers into my parents' life. So those are the harvest fields, the harvest fields everywhere and anywhere. And are we going to be able to be reapers of the shalom in ourselves, our children, our, our neighbors, and everyone around us, and call forth more laborers to do the same in their, in their areas of, of influence? So you're, you're saying it's calling forth the fruit of the spirit in people's lives, that would be manifest in their lives, basically. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just a couple, a couple final points, and then we can close. Um, you, know, you talk about, or in the book talks about uh, ch churches, family. Um, what if we turn that around and say the family is church? What, what kind of paradigm shift? I mean, I, I've kind of thought about that, and I thought it's a that's a pretty radical notion i don't think people see their family as church and if they did what would be the implications of that yeah you know, do you have any thoughts on that well i mean i shared in my own story the day john white said your family is the church it's a church you don't have to bring more people into your house to make it church it was huge the implications were huge because it meant one that I can actually spend time cultivating this joy in, in my own family. So I actually, I get rewards from God almost, you know, like it's okay that I, that we don't invite people over this weekend to minister because my kids need me. Is that, that's okay. That's valid because I swear we've been taught. You got to invite your neighbors over. You got to have, and we had people over three, four times a week. We had people in our home, but what did that mean? It meant my children were not getting seen the way they needed to be seen. And so for, especially for parents of young children, um, the ability to just have that freedom to go, no, they are my church right now. I get to be with them. I get to check in and listen to God together with them. I get to follow those conversations. I get to deduce their strengths out of them. I get to have build joy with them and they are valid enough. Like it's enough that, that I do this. It, it is, it, it is an amazing paradigm shift. Now, some people would be like, well, that's so insular and where's the mission of God in that? And the mission of God is that as we get vibrant and actually have our needs met, we overflow to everyone around us. When my children are on, I mean, my kids, it's amazing. Conversation with my 12-year-old in the car yesterday. She says, mom, you know what? Sophie is going to the mental institute tomorrow because she's been so depressed. They think she's going to kill herself. And I'm like, really? Is this one of your friends at school? Yeah, this is one of my friends at school. How do you feel about that? Well, I'm kind of sad, but I'm really glad that they're getting her the help she needs. Okay. And then she says, you know, mom, in fact, a lot of kids come to me at school with their problems. And I find that I listen to, I mean, I've got like five or six friends who have told me just recently that they're depressed or that they're really sad or that they're struggling at home or that their parents aren't nice to them. And she said, I'm so thankful that I am emotionally stable. <laughs> 
before. This was not my reality with our 21 year old when she was their age 10 years ago, because we had not lived Luke 10 for that long, like totally different reality, totally different person. We're living in the States, different life. But the fact that she would say, and then, and you know, that I'm emotionally stable because like I get to be there for them. And I said, you know, and that's kind of like who it is us to be as the people of God, to be vibrant, to be full, to be Jesus led. And then people come to us because they sense that joy, that shalom, that patience, that kindness and goodness within us. And, and it's just who we are as the people of God. And she said, I like that identity. I like being that. I was like, I'm so uh, glad. That's exciting. So 12 years old, you know, and, and this is what this is producing in her life. And so people are, you know, can blame us of being inward focused because we don't have a house church in our home beyond our children, our two children now. <laughs> they, can, they, can, they can accuse us of that all they want, but the proof is in what's happening in her daily life at that school where she's now pastoring all of her friends who are depressed and have no, no one to listen to them, no one to be joyful with them and their emotions. She's even stopping bullying. Today, she was brainstorming how to stop the bullies at school. You know? <laughs> and, and that's the fruit that we're producing because we see us as a church. And I see my children as valid of my time so that I don't have 15 adults in this living room every week trying to pastorally care for them and teach them how to be Christ right now. That will hopefully come when my children are gone, right? But it frees families with children at home to count them as important enough to give them to, to, give to them. And I think that's really beautiful. Well, that's great. Uh, just let's close. Um, maybe share. You mentioned you have a podcast, and also you've written a couple books. Maybe talk a little bit about those opportunities, resources. Yeah, that sure. So, so back to joy, an intimate journey with Jesus into emotional health um, and maturity was the first one, and it's the longest one. It, it is available on audio, Audible, because it's probably better listened to as I tell stories. But those are the intimate journal entries of the moments where I, uh, Jesus took me back to memories and healed me all the way to um, when I found a manual in this more appreciation way and then, and then had a more daily encounter with him that actually gave me the joy to endure suffering. So there's a whole chapter on literally when I was attacked several times in Uruguay, um, how I was able to, to deal with that with a manual um, in a way to respond in love to the attacker. So that is back to joy. Um, joy fueled and joy fueled, a catalyzing a revolution of joyful communities is the second book. And that's with Dr. Kent Smith and John White. And that's Luke 10's first value is um, being joy fueled. And so that's more um, church oriented, church planting oriented. So if you're interested in uh, the biblical kind of side of these things or how this works out in your family or in churches, guilt driven, duty based. Um, paradigm shift right towards what the joy field looks like and then the last one is four keys to parent fearlessly and it's staying joy filled and jesus led even when you cannot control the outcomes um and so it's not a how to raise healthy children it's not that at all it is when you can't control what happens to your kids or how they're responding what kind of things they're choosing into or not choosing into how do you stay in in shalom and in peace so that you can parent them well, instead of parenting them out of your fear. Um, and so it's the four keys are really how to let God parent me, 
four steps to letting him, to connecting to him, letting him deal with my fear, uh, receiving truth so that I can then co-create kind of a new response to my child and then help my child actually connect to God and deal with whatever they're dealing with. So I have very personal stories about how that's been played out in my own family with my own children um, and in my own life, how specifically dealing with my own fear. And then finally, if people want to get more information on Luke 10, um, you talk about Church 101 kind of test driving or taste yeah. tester of the practices. Definitely. How can they do that? Definitely. Just the website's the easiest way, lk10.com, and you sign up for an intro call, and one of our facilitators will um, happily uh, lead you into that experience. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time, Tony. Well, Tom, thank you. You know, it's amazing. You're probably the only person I can sit here and talk this long with. I think you ask great questions. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Yeah. Bye-bye. Well, thank you. This is oh great. Word. Oh my gosh, man. I hope I didn't burn you out, but not at all. Not at all. I hope I didn't talk way too much. No, it. no, that's, that's my goal is to ask the question, tee it up and let you hit it. I thought you did great. A lot of great is rich, rich content. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking forward to uh, going back and reviewing it and posting it. But, you know, I, that's been my sense. I was really attracted to Luke 10 because, you know, I, I met John or at least talked to him for emails about uh, three or four years ago, and then just dropped off. And then I got an email right at the time I was sensing one, I need to hear the Lord's voice better. And I was saying, what is the core of marriage? What are the core practices? And I got an email from Luke 10 out of the blue. And it said, you know, let's hear God's voice and connect with others at a heart level. And I said, that's what marriage is. And um, so I, yeah, I just love to see how that can be expressed in um, how that can be followed up maybe is there a way to gear gear Luke 10's practices or small groups create some that would be focused on marriage more or I don't know if you have any thoughts on that um I will have to go soon I've got to get the kids from school okay let me, say this. Let me say this let me say this Stephen Johnson um like he has taken church 101 and he rewrote it for his church because he had to, he had to rewrite it in a way that would somehow uh, be friendly for people who weren't necessarily 100% tend to be answers, right? Because when you're working with a church setting, these people haven't necessarily sought this out, signed up for it, and are dying to do it, right? Right. And that's kind of the way marriage is too. <laughs> you know, one of one spouse usually ropes the other into it. So part of me wonders what he's developed, you know, if that's anything that would be helpful or not. Um, you know, the other part of me thinks that as God brings you tend to be answers who want to focus on just, so uh, let me say this too, on the discord channel. Now we have a whole section of people trying to apply this in traditional church settings. So there's now 10 people conversing about this, whereas two or three years ago, it was just Stephen Johnson. Like nobody wanted to take this into the institutional church, but now there's 10 people. So Stephen actually has more people now to try this out with and get ideas with and actually have a movement team if he wanted to with just these people, right? So I'm still of the mindset of you, you know, God is going to bring some people who have this passion with you and they want to see this in marriages and they're all in and maybe they want to rewrite this course 
in a way that that's for marriage. And, um, and that would be a great endeavor. And you could, you know, I, I don't know what we would do with it after that, but I know there's tons of people in LinkedIn that could figure out how to help you do something with it. Um, you know, the artist circles, they rewrote it for artists. You saw Julie and, and Kent for a long time. Kent was out there all by himself. Kent wrote this course three, four years ago now. But Julie came along this year, connected with Kent, and she's the one that put it actually into the world. So she's his first major tend to be answer, right? Mm -hmm. So I would say, you know, that really is going to be important. Who God brings to you to do this together. John developing it, trying to get it out there. What until God brought me as his tend to be answer to where there was the synergistic and I knew how to get it into the world, right? Good. And he was doing that for six years before I came along. <laughs> uh, and, and then just one last question, circling it, I know you had to leave, but um, we talked about uh, maybe my wife and I going through, I think, I, I see I need to go deeper in some of the emotional skills. Mm -hmm. um, and you, are you still doing counseling on that? I can still, yeah, I'm still open to meeting with you guys if you ever want to meet, um, if she enjoyed meeting with me. Um, I don't, that is not my strength though. Marriage counseling is not my strength. I can give skill development work and that type of thing. I can assess, I can refer, like that's usually what I do. Um, but I don't mind meeting if it's helpful. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I feel like it's my strength, that's all. Well, or maybe, maybe it is just going to the Thrive and just developing. I would highly recommend it, Tom, especially for you because you're wanting to lead a movement. I, I think for anyone leaving, leading a movement, it's essential. It is just essential because you've got to shore up your own foundation and that will do that. And not only will it shore up your own foundation, but it will give you everything you need to coach and train anyone else along the way. The three sessions. It's not cheap, but. <laughs> um, we flew our family from Uruguay, South America. It was $10,000 every year. We put $30,000 into our Thrive training and it was the pearl of great price and we don't regret one minute of it. Really? Wow, that's powerful. And you need to do it with one other person so you don't just go by yourself. Yeah, and if your spouse would do it with you, even better. Um, but if they if they won't, then yeah, it would be great to have another. Yeah, okay. someone, that, someone that you're you're in life with. Okay, great. Thank you. Well, thank you, Tom. Thank I appreciate you. it. Let me know when it posts because I'll advertise your podcast as well. And I would love to, I need your link. I don't even, didn't even know you had one. Did you put it on Discord yet? Did you see our podcast channel on Discord? No, I, I'm not even uh -huh. sure how to do it. It's on, it's on Spotify, but I don't uh -huh. know how to. Send me the link. I'll get it on our Discord channel. Okay. Bye-bye. Right. Take care. Bye. Bye, -bye.